Hello and welcome to The Rules of Investing. I'm your host, David Thornton. Today's guest is Dr. Philip Hofflin, Portfolio Manager on the Australian Equity Team with Lazard Asset Management. Phil is a value investor and understanding asset bubbles is his jam, so he's the perfect guest to have on given the current climate. In today's episode, we cover why Jerome Powell has gone full hawk, the Australian housing market and why we might have to delever from it, the asset bubble we've just come out of and what it means for valuations moving forward, and the way Phil thinks about and gets exposure to the energy sector. If you're an Apple podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber already, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified whenever we post new content. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. Phil, great to have you on The Rules of Investing. Thank you very much, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, last week we had Jackson Hole. Jerome Powell's gone uh, full hawk, uh, invoking Volcker, and of course Volcker killed the economy, uh, so that freaked markets out. Um, it all sounded very Mario Draghi-ish, didn't it? Well, it did have the uh, uh, whatever takes uh, uh, meaning in it, although it was, of course, in the opposite direction. But he basically made two points. He made the first point, which is that, you know, referred to the 1970s debate as to whether a central bank can control inflation. And he said quite correctly, you know, that we've had that discussion. Uh, you know, uh, the decision, you know, the, the verdict is in. Of course they can. And therefore it's our job to do it. And he secondly referred to the 70s in the context of the fact that in the 1970s, uh, and in, indeed in, the, in all the way back to the early 60s, as inflation rose, policy was tightened, but it was eased too early. Now, as soon as there was some pain, uh, you know, the central bank cut again, and that meant that inflation wasn't actually, uh, uh, you know, uh, brought down. So he also mentioned the fact that it's going to cause some pain. And I think that's that's probably uh, 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 the important part for the market. There's also the uh, the point that the Fed put that we had for the last 25, 30 years is probably gone. They now have a different priority, um, and their job now is to cause some pain, right? They particularly in the labour market and probably to asset prices. Um, and I would say that we have two episodes that we can look at where high inflation was brought under control. You mentioned Paul Volcker and the early 1980s, that was one. And in Australia, of course, it was the recession we had to have you know, in, in, in 1991, which did it. In both of those cases, you know, we had rates in the high teens and unemployment rates of 11%. So certainly uh, in the past, it has taken Quite a lot to to get back to the to, to the Draghi phrase. It has taken a lot, so perhaps there is quite a bit of pain. He really has to follow through, doesn't he? I saw a nice tweet from Larry Summers that made the analogy with taking the full course of antibiotics. You know, if you don't, if you don't take the full course and you and you stop short, it's almost counterproductive. So he's really got to follow through, doesn't he? I think that's the hope uh, uh, that we probably all, all all need to have. It means probably. Um, tighter conditions, lower asset prices in the short term, but in the medium term, he's right. It's much better to do the job once properly. What took him so long to really have this, this about face and adopt this hawkish stance? Look, I mean, uh, <laughs> that question is probably above my pay grade, but it's clearly the case that when you look at the comments of Fed governors over 21, at the start of 21, they did think there wasn't going to be inflation, and then they thought it was transitory. Um, 
why did all the central banks get it wrong? And to be quite honest, why did pretty much all the economists get it wrong? There were a few that distinguished themselves, like Larry Summers and Jason Furman at Harvard. Um, why did they all get it wrong? There was one group that got it right. There were the monetarists. Um, and perhaps that is going to be another lesson that we have to relearn from the 70s. Um, you know, the quantity theory of money, that is, inflation is really always about an increase in the money supply, um, was, you know, really articulated uh, and developed in the 1970s during the high inflation era. And it's fair to say that after Volcker was successful with his policy, as, 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 as Martin Wolf put it recently, by the 1980s, everybody believed in, in monetarism. But over the last 40 years, we've gone away from that. It's not really part of the, um, of the Keynesian economists' uh, sort of uh, toolkit. So perhaps that is one reason why it was missed. Um, but, you know, uh, only time will tell. So modern monetary policy is dead and buried? I think that MMT, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it's probably the case that nobody expected um, it to be tried so quickly and it's on such large scale. But I think um, already the evidence is that perhaps it wasn't the, the best idea. And I think as an idea, yes, I would say it's probably dead. And just lastly on, on the Jackson Hole stuff, do you think the terminal rate can be lower if the rate hikes are front-loaded? Look, that is probably the case because when you uh, when you get uh, rapid rate rises, um, it causes more dislocation, and we have to remember that you know an, a recession uh, in an economy is it's really it's when something goes wrong. It's when the economy stops functioning for a brief period. Uh, you know, it's a nonlinear event, very hard to forecast, and it is runs very dramatically, of course, through household sentiment. Household sentiment really is key uh, to that. And you know, um, if, if if you've read Mervyn King's book, you know, following the the GFC, he makes that point extensively. You know, uh, he asks questions like, "What really changed in Ireland or in the UK over 2008?" And the answer is people's expectation of future house price gains changed and that changed their behavior and that changed the economy and that had all the had all those consequences so when recessions occur they are they are they uh, it's like a break in the normal behavior of the economy uh, to, there's a nice story that I think uh, Don Russell tells he was the um, was the advisor to Paul Keating and uh, you'll recall that in the late 80s, um, the Reserve Bank was tightening rates and tightening rates. And eventually, you know, they, we got to mortgage rates of 17%. But they kept on tightening and nothing happened. And then uh, as, as, as Don Russell uh, tells the story, he was there with Paul Keating one morning and they heard the economy crack. Suddenly, it all went wrong. And it happens really quickly. And, you know, you go back to the middle of 2008 and there was a lively debate in the United States as to whether there was going to be a recession. Now, we know that three months later, we, we knew we were in a recession. In fact, we knew we were in a, in a, in a financial crisis. So it happens very quickly and um, almost impossible to forecast uh, if you just go on, if you look at the evidence of what people thought at the time. Very hard to anticipate. And it seems like the key variable in all of this is wages. If he can't bring wages down, then he's just got to keep keep pushing, right? Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, in the US, they have a wage price spiral. There's no there's no doubt about it. I mean, wages are rising at five six percent. It's just completely incompatible with two percent inflation, right? You might get one percent productivity if you're doing well, but you know, um, and that means that it is now the job of the Fed 
to hurt the labour market. I mean, to put it really bluntly, they have to throw people out of work. And they have to throw millions of people out of work. That is now their job. Well, Phil, tell me what you really think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, look, it it, it hasn't been done for a very long time. But back in, again, back in the the 80s, everybody had got to that conclusion. Yes, that's the job of the central bank to support when things are, 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 are weak. But when you have an inflation problem, they have to go in there and do the painful thing. You know, it's the old story about, you know, take, taking the punch bowl away just as the party gets going. Um, we don't know whether they will do that job or whether they will, uh, at the end, you know, shirk and, uh, and do what happens a couple of times in the 70s. Um, I mean, what Paul Volcker did was, um, was very brave, you have to say, right? I understand. I seem to recall he had police protection for a fair while. And he's a big guy to begin with. And he's a big guy to begin <laughs> with, right? So uh, he's almost seven foot or something. So um, it is. It is very. It's a really tough job to do. But yeah, they do have this problem. And as you know, uh, in the United States, you know, our labor market is very tight. We now have for the first time more job vacancies than unemployed. Well, in the United States, that ratio is two to one. So if every single uh, unemployed person in the US um, took a job. Job ads would, would would just go back to a normal rate. There'd still be all these vacancies. So the US labor market is incredibly tight. And you're seeing that in a lot of you know labor actions, because you know, currently the pricing power is with labor. You know, and the unions notice this and the workers notice this, so they're getting wage increases. So um in order to stop that spiral, um, it is now the job of the Fed to do something that's that, that that's pretty nasty. But you know, the way you have to think about this is that, you know. It makes sense for any, any individual to give a pay rise to their worker because they need more staff. But as a, for society as a whole, that doesn't lead down the right path, right? Uh, that just sustains inflation. So yes, the, the, um, the Fed has to, has to act and act very dramatically. I, I should point out it's a little bit different in Australia though, because, um, in Australia, um, we do have a very tight labor market. It's the tightest since 1974 in terms of the unemployment rate. And in Australia too, the percentage of population that's working, um, is also at a, new, uh, as a re- at a record. Um, so it's not a lack of labor supply. It is really demand. Mm-hmm. But in Australia, the official wages numbers are still quite benign, you know. Um, I think the last number came in at 2.8 year over year. And really, uh, the RBA says, and it's, I think that's right, we should be aiming for three to three and a half percent. So that when you take that one percent inflation, uh, sorry, productivity off, we get to roughly an inflation rate that's, you know, within, you know, within the target. So on the headline numbers, our wages growth is still too low. Now, in contrast to that, uh, all the surveys, things like the NAB survey or, uh, you know, or the liaison data that the RBA gets suggests that wages are, are picking up. In some areas, they're rising quite rapidly, but it is much less clear in Australia as to whether we really have a wage problem or not. So I think we'll find out over the second half. If we don't, um, then I think, uh, that sort of tough outlook that the US has, doesn't really quite apply to us. And I think we can get away with, with something that might approximate a soft landing. So what's the key variable here? Is the housing market to us what wages are at the moment to the US? Yes, but uh, in the sense that wages are the economic problem in the United States, but it's on the side of it is inflationary. In Australia, the Achilles heel in Australia is the housing market. You're quite right. But it's on the side of, it's on the, on the disinflation side in the sense that um, clearly um, Australia has a much more rate sensitive household sector. 
Um, and the reasons for that are pretty obvious. You know, um, household debt levels in Australia about half compared to incomes uh, relative to the US. So half the debt. House prices are more than twice as high relative to incomes. So very high asset price. Um, and of course, pretty much all of our debt is floating rate. That's its standard variable rate or over 23, 24, uh, you know, those fixed rates are going to roll to ver standard variable, while in the US, of course, it's 30-year fixed. Uh, so in the United States, when the Fed raises interest rates, most households are not affected at all. The only households that are affected in the housing market are those who, you know, the marginal new buyer who's less likely to buy. In Australia, as you, as you know, uh, rates go up and within six weeks, every household pays more. So what was an enormous strength you know, um, in the GFC, in the RBI cut, or later in COVID, because this immediate flow through is now an Achilles heel, um, because if, as you tighten, you get a much bigger effect. Um, and I think that means that the terminal rate in Australia is likely to be much lower than in the US. Um, now, the, he, this is where we get into um, speculation and, and estimating and so forth. But um, it seems to us that uh, the RBA going well above three sounds quite dangerous for the housing market. Um, now, as you know, uh, we, we do have a bit of a um, lead indicator, and it's the Kiwi in the coal mine. We, we can watch New Zealand. They started tightening earlier. They have very similar housing issues to us. It's the same banks uh, lending the money there. And so far, you know, um, I think the last number was that in Wellington, prices are down 16%, in Auckland, they're down 13%, and they're falling like a stone. I mean, housing markets move very slowly. So when you talk about the equity market being down 16% in a half a year, that's, that, that, that's not that unusual. A housing market usually falls very slowly. I mean, as an example, in the US housing crisis, took prices, I think, six years in total to fall 28%. This is half a year, and some of these prices are way down in, in well into double digits. Um, so uh, we will see what happens in New Zealand, and I think that's quite a good safety mechanism for us, because if the RBA, uh, sorry, the RBNZ eventually gets to the point where they say, "Oh, this is going wrong," this, you know, we, we, we because you do run the risk of going over the cliff. They might pull back and provide a really good signal for us. And and let me just sort of emphasize this idea of. Um, that you can go over the cliff in the sense that um, in housing, like in every other sector, sentiment is really important, but it's even more important there because it's all you know, households. It's not professional investors. And the evidence clearly is that uh, whether that's Japan in 1990 or the United States or in Ireland or Spain in 2008, if households decide that they want to take here and they no longer believe that property always goes up, um, they change their behavior. And then there's nothing you can really do about it. In all these cases, cuts, rates were cut to zero, and that had very little effect, right? Uh, you know, uh, price in the US fell until 2011. In Japan, they ended up 70% down, even with negative rates, you know, because once you, uh, once the sentiment in the market is shattered, uh, nobody wants to gear into a falling market, right? So the, the, the demand for debt dries up and you get delivering. And delivering you, you, you is, could is see that happen, you could see that happening in Australia. Delev Australians delevering to property. I mean, they, at the, you know, our situations that we're geared to the eyeballs in property. Do you see a situation where that that psychology changes? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, and, and I say this because it's happened in virtually every other country at some stage. So um, I think of a sample of about 40 OECD type countries. I think 38 have had a significant property correction in the last 40, 50 years. The two exceptions are Australia and, and, and Canada uh, on the, on the, on the, on that sample. So clearly it can happen here, right? Um, it's basically the moment when a couple sits around the kitchen table and they say, look, remember we had this plan. For retiring in ten years, we're going to. We, you know, we all know house prices double every ten years in Sydney. So we're going to sell the property, repay the rest of the debt, and we've got enough money to retire. And suddenly they think, well, perhaps not. And then they have to change their behaviour. They have to actually save money in order to 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 uh, to get wealthier. And the, of particular, a particular risk is the fact that we have a large investor market. So I don't know exactly what the size is, but it's actually two point five trillion dollars of investor assets out there. And um, there's debt against it, of course. And at least according to the tax records, and look, there are tax records, um, the total investment is cash flow negative. In other words, the average property investor in Australia claims a deduction. And that's before rates go up. So we have an asset here that's the size of the entire stock market, and it has negative cash flow. If people decide that, you know, do we really need this investment property? It's costing us $5,000 a year. You know what? I'm not, I don't feel good about it. Let's sell it. Let's get rid of the debt. If we get to that point, yes, of course it can happen here. And, you know, um, Australians like to think we have a special property, a special relationship with property. But if you've been overseas, you've probably noticed that almost every country claims that. The Australian dream becomes the Australian nightmare. It's the, also the American dream and the, and, and the Irish dream and who knows what. So, yes. Okay, let's move to markets. Some people say that we've hit bottom, everything's priced in. You do not agree with that. You think there's a lot more pain to come. I think that's a, that's a reasonable summary, but I'd like to sort of put that there. There are two different aspects to it. Um, the first aspect is the absolute value of markets. And um, look, we're Australian investors, but we obviously do look at the US and the United States market looks on, on pretty much any measure uh, quite expensive to us. It remains very expensive. Um, you know, and um, if you look at headline multiples, it may not seem that bad, but you have to allow for the fact that they have record margins, record low tax uh, taxes being paid and very low interest bills. And you know, a long time ago, uh, sort of uh, almost 30 years ago when I started in this business, I was very fortunate uh, that uh, I was taught by a fellow who was probably one of the really first full-time analysts in Australia. And he said to me, markets get expensive when people put peak earnings on peak multiples. And that applies really well, for example, to Australia in 2007, you know, when that market peak we're basically, we're basically still at that level, you know, 15 years later. And it was because the multiple back then wasn't that high, all the earnings were at cyclical highs due to the mining boom. And we're in a similar situation for the US. The earnings are at cyclical highs and they're being placed on high multiples. So I think fundamentally there's a lot of downside in the US. Australia, I don't think is that bad. Our market is, on our models is a little bit overvalued, but when you talk about 10, 20%, David, that's no, that's no signal, right? Um, markets, you know, uh, mean revert, but they do so over long periods of time. And you can only really uh, uh, sort of act on that when there's a significant deviation. So in Australia, let's call it neutral. The second way of looking at this, when you talk, when you talk about how things have to correct, is the internal market dynamics, right? So internally, we, have, we still have a very distorted market. Um, 
in the sense that, you know, we had in starting in sort of 18, a, a growth boom, growth stock boom. And that then, uh, you know, in COVID 2021 became a huge multiple bubble. And the multiple bubble we had in Australia uh, was larger than that in uh, that peak in March 2000, larger than the, the, than the tech boom. So multiples for, the, say, the top quintile stocks or top third stocks reached higher levels than they did back then. So we had an enormous multiple bubble. And that's all it was. It was a multiple bubble. If you go back, um, you know, over pretty much any period and you look at the cumulative earnings growth of, um, of the MSCI value index, as MSR growth index, value is one handsomely. Faster growth, and that's even before you count the higher dividends. Um, and similarly, you know, um, since the, that boom got going, the infotech sector, um, since late uh, 16, it has the second worst cumulative EPS growth on the exchange. In fact, mine is 11% um, to, you know, uh, from the end of 16. So it was entirely a multiple bubble. And that has only at best half been reverted. So within the market, there remain these enormous differences. You're still in a position where the high multiple stocks are at big premiums to their normal premiums, and the low multiple stocks are big discounts to their normal uh, uh, discounts. So um, we are, I think in many ways, one year into a multi-year mean reversion internally, you know, from that two-tiered market where there was, you know, a lot of hype about tech and innovation and buy now, pay later, and uh, people shunning the, you know, the, the, the more established companies. So in, in, in that sense, we're a little bit like uh, in early 2001, or perhaps I could say middle of 2001, in the sense that, you know, the really speculative stocks already fallen really hard. You know, um, you know buy now, pay later stocks are sort of down 90% plus on average. Um, people are starting to question the, the bubble narrative. Um, but there's still lots of companies, the larger ones that are perfectly good companies that just became really expensive that are still far too highly priced. So I think there is a couple of years yet to go. And the, you know, the mean reversion really, uh, was very fast in the first quarter of this year. It's eased off a bit then, but I think there is, it's going to continue to drift in that direction. So I think there is in internally, a couple of years to go before relative pricing goes back to normal. Okay, so if I'm following you correctly, a lot of the growth, big growth names still have further to go. Some of, a lot of the value stocks are at fair fair value. Yeah, look, I mean, you, you, you can find various stocks that are perfectly reasonably priced. As I say, the ASX overall isn't that expensive. I mean, we, for instance, we like energy companies, we like insurance companies, we like some miners. The banks are not that expensive ex-combank, but uh, they do have that residential property issue. Um, as an example, all our fund management, all our, all our funds management stocks are on very low multiples now. So, um, but it is that sort of two-tiered market that we had, you know, 22 years ago. We had that again in 21. And, you know, I, I, David, I, I managed through the entirety of the dot-com boom, and I was there for all the outrageous stories and so forth. But I've got to say, um, I think 21 beat, beat that handsomely. I mean, we had crypto at three and a half trillion. We had Reddit stocks. We had, you know, bankrupt companies filing to raise equity. We had things that, you know, really were quite extraordinary. And there will be, um, there'll be plenty of, to write about for, for the market historians. Let's focus on energy. There's so much going on in the sector in terms of energy prices with the, the geopolitical, uh, wins. 
And then there's the energy transition alongside that. How do you think about and value energy companies? Um, so if I go for, first go to how we value them, we, we do DCFs because they have um, defined lives. They're not perpetuities. Each project has a defined life. Um, you'd be aware that oil and gas oil and gas reserves deplete at around 5% per annum. So that's the natural depletion rate, the runoff rate, which incidentally is not that different to uh, wind and solar too. You need to replace your solar panels and your turbines sort of every 20 odd years as well. So that's, a, uh, that's about 5% as well. Um, and we uh, try to value the short-term either excess profits or lack of profits in the short term, given depending on whether we are at a, in the middle of a slump or in the middle of a boom. And then we just use long-run prices. We mean revert that over three, four years uh, to long-run prices, long-run margins. We look at a lot of things like you know uh, profit per unit produced and things like that. Um, because that's at the level at which mean reversion takes place because, you know, when you have um, very low investment in a sector like that, that's good for profits, but, but you know, the, uh, because prices rise, but high prices in turn give rise to cap capex, which produces too much output and then gets those prices back down again. That's the usual cycle. So um, we look at these things, we look at the cost curves a lot. Uh, because clearly um, a price that is either below the 90th percentile or well above, you know, the 90th percentile is not going to be sustained in the long run. Right? They will mean revert back towards that. <clears throat> um, you started this off by saying that energy is a, is a very big issue and it's very complex, and it is. But um, I'd like to sort of um, talk a little bit first about what energy is and why it's different to other economic inputs. Because you know, the first thing is that energy is absolutely essential. Right, very hard to do without. So it's it's a necessity, you know, you know, you know, if you will, and 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 energy is incredibly strongly correlated with with your standard of living, because in physics, um, energy is the ability to do work, and really that's also what it is in 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 the, in the economy. It's the ability to do things. Um, once upon a time, you know, we had our own labor to draw on and we were very poor. And then over time, we got, you know, uh, draft animals and horses and we were a bit richer. And today, you and I, David, have 70 people working for us all day long. They heat things for us, they wash our stuff, they carry us to the city, they light things. 70 people working 24 hours a day for us, with, with that's the energy equivalent. And we've built up over, over a long time a vast web of sources of energy, right? They're different types. Um, they have different costs, different transportability, and different reliability. And those last two are actually really important um, in terms of how they're valued and their utility to humanity. <clears throat> and in that system, 80% of them are fossil fuels. That's And it's roughly split a third, a third, a third, you know, uh, gas, coal, and oil. And the rest is made up of uh, and obviously nuclear, hydro, what's called traditional biomass, which is poor people burning wood, um, and then the new renewables, solar and, uh, and wind and, and modern biomass. Um, the problem we face, obviously, is that that 80% is a lot. I mean, to give you, to give you a, 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 a number on that, if we stopped using fossil fuels tomorrow, we would go back to the living standards of 1820 on this planet per capita. We'd have the energy of the 1820s. Um, so we have to replace a very large part. It's been 80% for the last 70 years, very stable. And it's very hard to replace. So the first thing I think from an investment perspective is to say, this is going to be slow. 
And this is what the, what the market got horribly wrong sort of two years ago when they thought this is all going to happen really quickly. It's going to be slow. It's going to be slow because it's a vast undertaking. A good example is, uh, you know, the effort that Germany has made on the Energiewende. So they've spent really the last uh, 20 years, you know, investing for that. And over that time, they've reduced the fossil fuel reliance from 84% to 70-70% of the economy. And you can see from that, that at that rate, they're going to finish in about 240 years to go to zero. So this is, uh, this is far too slow, right? And they've made a pretty good, they've given that a pretty good shot. Um, in Australia, we are still at 87% fossil fuels in our total energy supply. And the other concerning thing is that Germany and Australia and every other economy, we're starting with the easiest part first. The easiest part is introducing renewables into the electricity sector because you already have base load, so you can put that in fairly easily. But as you go from you know, sort of 30% renewables to 60, it becomes more expensive because you need to you need storage, you need backup. And by the time you want to go to 100%, you need a lot of backup. It's all costs, but it's really just there for the eventuality. So unfortunately, it becomes, it becomes more expensive, right? So the cost is very large. Uh, I think the International Energy, Energy Agency estimated, you know, some years back now, 100 to 150 trillion dollars US, and with inflation, that's probably 120 to 170 trillion dollars now. Uh, so it's very expensive. Now, one of the problems we have is that you can't just say, well, we'll, we'll spend less on capex in fossil fuels. And we'll use that in renewables. And the reason for that is that at least at the moment, although we hope will change over time, um, renewables are about four to five times as capex intensive. And there are two basic reasons for that. The first one is just the physics of, of the processes. You know, um, the renewable energies are they're more land intensive, particularly solar is incredibly land intensive. They're more energy intensive to build and run, and they are more materials intensive. Um, so that obviously raises your capex. But the second reason is that fossil fuels, you know, they leverage many, many decades of ca of investment in infrastructure. You know, but the power lines run from the, the coal mines, correct? Not from where the wind blows best, or you know, exactly or right. We've got pipeline systems, you know, yeah. uh, which are for gas, not for hydrogen. We've got ports, old off offshore platforms, refineries, chemical plants. All this is already there. So when we invest in fossil fuels. It's much less expensive. So, um, so we, the problem is that we can't just we can't just switch, right? Um, so we need to invest a great deal more. Now, at the moment, if you look at where we are, um, you know, the global energy system has been equilibrated. Uh, demand supply has been equilibrated through the price mechanism for the last fifty years. You know, or probably since the Second World War. You now, what I just spoke about earlier: prices are high, people invest. They force prices down, they stop investing, that gets prices up. Well, over the last couple of years, we've suspended that system in the Western world. Um, it's only in the Western world, but we have suspended that. We've told companies, don't invest. Doesn't matter how much money you're making, just don't invest. And the result is that globally, we're probably spending 60% of what we require to spend to generate about one odd percent output growth, which is what the world requires. And the world requires it because we've got 80 million more people every, every year and, we're, and, and a lot of countries still want to increase their living standards. So we're investing about 60%. But the problem is, David, is that we need about 75% of that capex just to replace the natural depletion rate. So it's, it's the case that when you just invest at 60% the sustainable rate, it's not the case that your output growth falls to 60% you know, of what it was. You are actually going to get declines. 
because 75% is required just to overcome what runs off. So the problem with saying we shouldn't have any new you know, gas fields is the old ones run off. So just to replace them, you need to have some new ones. So we have that on one side, and on the other side, we have renewables. And renewable investment is has gone grown a lot. We're probably at a trillion dollars a year. But we are well away from what is required to um, both give us all the output demand the world needs, one 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 half percent, and to allow for fossil fuels running off. So I think we're probably in a position where we're now going to face higher energy prices, more volatile energy prices, and occasionally probably even shortages. Okay, so how should investors um, gain exposure both to, to new energy and old energy, which is still so important? Yeah, so look, uh, in our portfolios, we have um, three sort of segments that fall into that. We own energy producers outright, so that's the old energy, if you will, um, companies like Woodside, Santos, and Whitehaven Coal. Um, we also own some picks and shovel stocks, Wally and Monodelphus. Monodelphus, because they do mining contracting, and we, we're going to need more mining. Um, Monodelphus is, yeah, we're very pleased we've been able to buy it in the sense it's, it's, it's probably the highest quality stock in that sector. And it used to trade quite expensively. But, you know, in the, in 2020, with that enormous fall in everything connected with commodities and energy, it finally became cheap and we've, we've got a chance. And Wally, of course, does mostly oil and gas, but increasingly they're doing a lot of work on, yes, offshore, offshore wind, uh, hydrogen projects and the like, because it requires the same expertise, because expertise is building pipelines, doing, you know, doing things offshore. You know, it's an engineering firm. And lastly, we own companies like South 32 for the for the transition metals. But in all of these cases, I've, I've got to emphasize to you, we're, we're very valuation focused. So we own the energy stocks because they're not pricing you know, the high energy prices. If they were, we wouldn't. Similarly, for instance, no, we're not in lithium. It's red hot and the prices have and the prices of the metal and the stocks have gone through the roof. But you know, we think that's too expensive. So um we own kind of like Woodside because you can buy it today really at but slightly less than you, you could in early 2020, right? Just be just be COVID. Okay, so what sectors then are attractively valued at the moment? Yeah, look, uh, we, we do hold quite a, a couple of uh, insurance companies. Uh, the, our biggest holding is in QBE. And we originally bought this company for um, the premium rate cycle. Uh, for those who are not familiar with it, but there, there is a global premium rate cycle um, you know, if for that sort of commercial upper end insurance market. Um, and you can get data back on that, back all well, back to the 1970s. As you'd imagine, uh, um, <clears throat> when there's a big, when there are set of big disasters like Hurricane Andrew or World Trade Center happens, prices spike and then they slowly erode away again on the other side. And we had a long drought, a long time where that cycle bumped around the bottom, but the market started harding in about 2019. And we've had very high increases in premium rates around the world since that time. Now, together with this, we now have the uh, um, fact that interest rates are going up. And I'll have to apologize. This is a slightly complex argument for those who don't know insurance accounting. But there are a couple of impacts on insurance company from higher inflation, higher rates. If it is just interest rates going up, uh, well, as opposed to say inflation, just interest rates normalizing, that's an unmitigated good for insurance companies because um, it is their, their, their balance sheets are hedged, their own bonds, and they have liabilities, and they're the same duration. So if, if, if bond prices fall, that is bond yields rise, 
Um, they lose money in the bond portfolio, but the liabilities in the future are discounted and there's no effect on the balance sheet. But of course, on an ongoing basis, the yields on the technical reserves on the bond portfolio go up. So it's a clear gain to the PL. And a company like QBE, for every 100 basis points, they make 15% more profit. Um, it's a little bit more complicated if there's actually a rise in inflation, because then also your future claims liabilities go up. And it is the case that insurance companies will have to increase reserves. Um, but you know, you can, you can, um, look at the sensitivities they publish. And at worst, if inflation stayed higher by a significant amount forever, yes, that would cost, uh, that would be quite costly. But it would also mean, of course, that their PNL improves very dramatically because, you know, bond yields would be very, very much higher. So, um, so we think while there are, while there are some good and bad for these companies, they are not, uh, they're priced in a uh, very modestly on very low multiples. QB is on, I think, eight times, uh, two, two years earnings out. Um, and they've had a lot of earnings upgrades, but the price still has, you know, is still lagged. Um, so it's not quite as good as a company as, as Computer Share, another company we've had, but we are, uh, starting to lighten because Computer Share has no balance sheet at all. It's just, they just make more money when, when interest rates go up. They hold client balances. They're about 30 odd billion US dollars and they just get the interest on it. So, uh, so Computer Share's earnings have just gone up very dramatically. And that is a stock where there's no risk at all. And if I just stay on the financial theme for a moment, banks are the opposite end. They too benefit from rising rates through the interest margin, but they have the biggest gearing. So for them, the balance sheet risk probably looms much larger than for, let's say, an insurance company. Okay, Phil, we always finish these interviews with three favorite questions. It's part thought experiment, part confessional. <laughs> um, the first question, what's the single biggest thing investors are getting wrong about markets at the moment? It's a difficult question, David. I, I would probably nominate um, the idea that, you know, um, that the, many people in the market still believe that inflation is just going to conveniently go away. You mentioned Larry Summers earlier. He, he coined the phrase immaculate disinflation. In other words, it's disinflation without any pain. History suggests that's just not the case. Um, and I think what the market has also ignored, I mentioned earlier, is the monetarist view of the world. Um, in the United States, in the two years after COVID hit, the money supply went up 45%. There, were, there are 45% more US dollars. What would you expect to happen? Well, exactly what happened. First, asset prices go up, then the economy booms, and then you get inflation. That's the playbook from past episodes of, of money creation. Um, and it then becomes very hard to get rid of. Um, yeah, that's unfortunately the history. Now we hope that it turn, turns out better, but I think that's probably the biggest thing that where markets are still complacent. And of course, it's not just rates. Uh, there'll also be the QT um, pulling liquidity out of the market. Yes. I, I mean, QE doesn't really affect the money supply very much because it, you know, it, it does go in the US, it goes to excess reserves at the Fed. Uh, what are called exchange settlement accounts in Australia. So it doesn't have a big impact on that. And a good example of that is Japan. So Japan has um, has conducted QE operations for, you know, for the better part of 20 years now. They've increased the base money enormously, but they have not had broad money growth at all, really. Even, even in this recent episode, there are three countries that didn't grow their money supply, Japan, 
China and, uh, and, 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 and Switzerland. And those three countries, despite the fact that they all have chip shortages and car issues and transport issues and energy prices, they don't have the inflation rates, which is a very good test of what is really causing inflation. Because Switzerland in particular, for example, Switzerland is not just landlocked, it's EU locked. So everything the EU gets, they get it too. But um, yeah, they don't have the same inflation problem because they didn't uh, conduct the excess that so many other countries did in the um, in twenty in twenty. Okay, question two: Could you share a story of a big win or a big loss in your investing career, uh, and what did you learn from it? Let me go very recent and come up with with with, with the most dramatic examples. Um, over the last two years, obviously, it's been Whitehaven for us. Um, I should mention that you know I spoke about this two years ago. Uh, with you know, with James on Livewire, uh, when it was below a dollar, uh, this morning it was above eight dollars. Um, it's a it's a classic stock where um, there was a cyclical slump in earnings, and because it was coal, everybody hated it and said, "Look, it's basically uninvestable." Everybody was throwing up their hands and saying, "This is I just don't want to have it." I think there was probably a bit of um, reputation a risk that people were trying to avoid. I don't want to be caught holding a, a, a stock in, in coal. Um, now, the enormous increase in coal prices, no, we did not forecast this, right? <laughs> um, uh, when it was $1, we thought it might be worth three. So we thought it was a bit of a special opportunity. It turns out, of course, that, uh, yeah, the coal price, the Newcastle price is, is still today over 400 US dollars. Um, the company makes so much money at the moment that if the price doesn't move, the stock price has to go up 40 cents a month just to allow for the cash that comes in. I know it's just extraordinary, right? Um, the lessons I take away from that is, you know, um, really hated stocks where everything is run one way are often great opportunities, um, but you've got to do your numbers. And the second thing I'd say is, look, luck in this case helped. But there is an element to which, you know, I mean, I think it was Gary Player who said the line about, you know, uh, the more I practice, the luckier I get. Value investors, we tend to have a whole portfolio of things that, you know, where hopefully expectations are modest, people have negative views, prices are low compared to a normalized outcome. And um, sometimes they come good and sometimes they not just come good, they go directly to the opposite. Having said that, you know, we've obviously sold a lot of our, our, our white havens. Um, and as the worst look uh, last couple of years, I can't go past AMP. Uh, awful investment. Um, Again, you know, some of the lessons I draw away from that are probably the first one, lightning does strike thrice. You know, lots of bad things can happen in a row, even if they're unconnected. That uh, That's the world. And the second one is probably just beware of royal commissions. Um, uh, a royal commission can turn an entire industry upside down because it's not something that is, it's not a, it's not a process which is considered policymaking. It's a one-way uh, process where one side makes its points and the other side, you know, uh, doesn't really get a voice. It was really the the enema that the market had to have, though, wasn't it? Look, I think it was absolutely necessary, uh, but I think it's fair to say that we probably swung far too far on the side of um, regulation and rules for advisors, in the sense that. You know, uh, we've now, <clears throat> since we started do, doing these regulations and we started all the way back with, 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 with FOFAR, you know, back in, in, in 2012, we've halved the number of advisors and we've doubled the cost of advice. That wasn't really the aim. Uh, interesting enough, the UK went through the same thing. They, they did, they had their sort of regulatory intervention a couple of years before Australia. 
And ten years later, they uh, the, the 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 pendulum swung the other way. People said, "Look, we're in a situation where the only people that get advice are people who are quite quite wealthy. That's not what we're aiming for." And you probably saw that uh, the new minister and the government is now talking about changing that again and moving to a different regime, which hopefully keeps all the good things. I mean, no more trial commissions and all these things, of course, but actually tries to uh, get us to a system where companies uh, can use technology and modern techniques to actually provide decent advice at a reasonable cost. Because most people in Australia just need fairly basic advice. Um, you know, really basic decisions on fees and where you should be. And honestly, in many cases, just uh, telling people to save money. That's one of the most valuable things that any advisor does is tell people the way you're going at the moment, it's not going to work, save a bit more money. So um, hopefully we will get there. But yeah, that was clearly the worst in the last and last couple of years. Final question, Phil. If markets were to close tomorrow for five years and you could only own shares in one company, which company would that be and why? Um, in some ways, you might say it's difficult. When I thought about it, though, you know, it's um, it's really not different to what we buy normally because, you know, there are two ways of, of buying stocks, if you will. There is buying something because you think the price is going to go up, but I call that speculation. And in that case, you need the market. Yes, the market is really essential to that process. If you're buying a stock piece, you just like to own it because it has good cash flow and whatever, then you don't really need the market in any case. So look, if I had to nominate one, I'd probably um, uh, go for Woodside, not because it's still the cheapest stock on, on, our, on, on our stock ranking, but it is, it is very safe in the sense that this company is a fortress balance sheet. You know, they bought the BHP Petroleum assets entirely with equity. So they have almost no debt. Their break-even cost is for is something equivalent of $12 a barrel of oil in a world where in Europe, they're buying gas at the equivalent of $500 a barrel. Um, and the Asian gas price too is at something like, well, forty, you know, $250 a barrel uh, for oil. So um, very low cost. Um, there are plenty of options in terms of expansions and so forth. Gas is a transition fuel. We will need it because if the first thing we want to do is get rid of coal. So we need gas. Um, it benefits from electric vehicles because electric vehicles move energy demand from oil, transport fuel to, to electricity generation, which is, let's face it, it's coal, gas, renewables, right? And, and, and increasingly gas. So, um, it has very high cash flows. Even today, it's probably a, 25% free, free cash flow yield. Um, and the important thing is the price is really very low. You know, I have a chart that looks at what the market has pay, paid for a barrel of production at Woodside over the last 25 years. Mm -hmm. And um, at times when the market likes Woodside, it pays more than double what it pays today. The share price today is $35. Um, so it has the, in the past paid the equivalent of $70 plus. Um, so I think that's a stock that is... Um, um, structured in the right place and it has pretty low risk. Of course, we don't recommend anyone go out there and have single company portfolios. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. Well, Phil Hoffman, thank you so much for coming on Rules of Investing. This has been a great chat. Thank you for your time, David. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's it for today's episode. I hope you got as much out of it as I did. For more daily content like this, be sure to sign up to livewiremarkets.com. We'll see you next time.